Uh, Ross, I might start with you and ask you, you talked about the elites that took Trump literally, but not seriously, and ordinary Americans who took him seriously, but not literally. Now that we've seen President Trump in office, mm. do you think perhaps we should take him both literally and seriously? Um, look, I am, <clears throat> I watched the inauguration uh, up live late and everybody was kind of thinking, well, is he now just gonna tone it down uh, and turn back in a more conciliatory way towards the establishment and say, okay, well, that's what we had to do to close the deal. Uh, now we're gonna behave like a normal politician. Uh, yet what we found, uh, was that not only did he not turn, he basically <laughs> ramped it up a notch. <laughs> he basically said, okay, now you're used to it, now we're going to really start playing this game. Um, I am loving it. <laughs> I think it's just getting better and better. You know, I was on Sky last night and some bloke said, oh, we're watching something, this is this, now we see it's probably going to be a train wreck, okay? Donald Trump has easily carried the argument with the American people, both in relation to the refugee ban and the halt on the seven countries. The American people are overwhelmingly with him. Uh, according to Andrew Bolt, the numbers are two to one. Uh, I think if you could get an accurate reading from people talking to pollsters, uh, it would be probably two to one. And so, so long as he's operating from within the uh, consent of the American people, I think he's safe as houses, and I think the more the establishment, you know, crawls into the fetal position <laughs> and groans and cries and screams out, uh, the stronger his position becomes. Uh, Tom, could I ask you then, if we are to take him seriously and literally, is Trump a protectionist, and will, if he is, will that be bad for Australia? Well, I think uh, da Daniel Baltz from the Washington Post put it best when he said that the last two weeks show that uh, Trump and his record so far means that uh, he satisfied all his Trump supporters, but he struck fear into the hearts of all his critics. I mean, he's a very polarizing character. Uh, but one thing that's clear in the course of the last two weeks is that he has put into practice a lot of what he said he'd do including the executive order on immigration, including uh, winding back or setting the scene for winding back uh, the Obama health care provisions known as Obamacare, uh, the climate regulations, uh, among other things. And what the one of the first things he did, of course, was withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the 12-nation free trade agreement uh, that it covers 12 nations, including Australia. Um, I don't think that's in Australia's interests. And I think that if indeed Donald Trump imposes a 45% tariff on Chinese goods and services, as he said he would do during the course of the campaign, uh, if he imposes a 35% tariff on Mexican goods, I think that will, among other things, increase the prices of goods and services for the very battlers he's ostensibly trying to help. I mean, obviously, textiles, clothing, footwear, for example, at Walmart, uh, the prices will go up because of a tariff increase. Um, so I don't think that's good for his own constituency, but I don't think it's good uh, for economic prosperity for the region and the globe generally. We went down this track in the late 1920s and throughout the 1930s when another Republican pre protectionist president, Herbert Hoover, in the aftermath of the uh, Wall Street collapse, uh, imposed tariffs on foreign imports. And many economists to this day believe that de that deepened the Great Recession. So, again, another problem is that if you indulge in tariffs and, and protectionist policies, you're more than likely going to get a response from trade competitors. Uh, the economic history shows that uh, trade wars don't lead to prosperity. Uh, I'd ask you then, uh, you talked about the party of Reagan. Mm. Reagan, uh, I think, uh, Trump's advisor or Trump's Trump's appointment, rather, as um, trade representative, was in off, acting in that office in the Reagan era. 
Lighthizer, Robert yes. Lighthizer. And uh, he, of course, was instrumental, and they were instrumental in pushing forward voluntary restraints. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Reagan also used tariffs uh, on, uh, uh, on electronic goods coming from Japan. Yeah. Do you think we're seeing uh, there, there are more similarities there than, than yeah. perhaps those who wrap themselves and say we're the party of Reagan might care to remember? Well, that's a very good point. I think there is a degree of inconsistency <laughs> here among conservatives. Reagan on semiconductors with Japan on certain other industries wasn't a classic free trader. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the broad cross-section of conservatives and especially Reaganites do believe in the principles of free trade. But look, one of the lessons we have learned from this election campaign, and this is a point that Francis Fukuyama, who's been a guest here at the Centre for Independent Studies on several occasions, he wrote this in Foreign Affairs magazine about a year ago. He said that what the rise of Trump and S Bernie Sanders, the, the old 75-year-old socialist who, who, among other things, uh, honeymooned in the Soviet Union, but uh, <laughs> Trump, and, <laughs> Trump and Sanders, their, their rise shows that uh, this is American democracy catching up uh, with uh, two generations of wage stagnation and rising income inequality for the losers of globalisation. And they're precisely the folks that Donald Trump has won over. Um, Louise, if I could turn to you then and ask you, uh, looking in Australia and at populism, we've heard Tom mention Bernie Sanders. Do you think uh, if there's going to be a populist wave in Australia that it might actually be on the Labor side? Are we already seeing Labor adopting more populist positions and how might that play out? Um, <clears throat> I think the problem with Labor's populist positions is that they're totally incoherent with their other positions. So they can take some of the Donald's bits on jobs and pretend they're into protectionism. Um, but when they're ignoring the other cultural things, such as free speech, and when they're going for the victim and the outrage, I mean, it's utterly incoherent. Um, which is why, I mean, there are a lot of people um, who are saying you know, there's only one seat difference between the parties, so Labor are going to win the next election. I don't, I don't think that's obvious at all, actually, because Labor's position is so incoherent. Um, so, look, I, I, the only way I see Labor running a populist position is if they reinstalled someone like Mark Latham. <laughs> uh, truly. I mean, I, I think Mark Latham, um, reinstalled in the Labor Party, could revolutionise it overnight. But I can't see Bill Shorten and Tanya Plibersek and um, Chris Bowen parting the waters for Mark to come and save them. That's not going to happen. So that's why I, I just don't think it's going to happen in a mainstream party. The, the, the vested interests, the, 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 the way they are just factionalised, plugged in with people lined up and, and, and waiting. There is just, I mean, the career, I think one of the big problems we have, and I didn't go into this in the speech, is, is the professionalisation of politics. Uh, the careerists, uh, none of them, or not many, not many at all, but most of them cannot afford <coughs> to lose their jobs or lose their seats. So you will find that in all the safe seats across all the, all the major parties, in nearly all case, cases, my husband's an exception, but in nearly all cases, they will have been pretty plugged into the political process prior to getting pre-selection. Usually they will have been a staffer, on the Labor side, a, a union member, uh, but on both sides. Liberals like to think that they're not like this, but in fact, in the safe seats, and certainly across New South Wales, um, in, in the safe seats, they are all career politicians. Now, there's nothing wrong with career politicians, but um, there are some wonderful people who are career politicians with great values and who do the right thing and behave properly, of course. But the overall system um, works to uh, eject non-career politicians. They don't like newbies, I can tell you. Um, and that is the problem. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think a mainstream party um, is looking for a Donald Trump. Ross, can I ask you, you're such a fan mm. uh, um, of Donald Trump. Yeah. What's the one <coughs> bad thing that, that you could see mm. that could happen? You've paid a lot of attention. Mm. What, what would be his, either his Achilles heel or what's the one thing you fear that he might do? 
Well, look, I agree with Tom in relation to trade policy. Okay, I'm a Trump critic. All right. Um, in that I am uh, an Adam Smith guy. I am a Margaret Thatcher uh, person. I am a believer like Paul Johnson, who said, if you look back through the sweep of human history, what have been the most positive influences for good on the whole of the human race, uh, he would say that trade is at number one, bringing voluntarily, bringing strangers together in trust-based relationships that create value for both sides, maximising the natural strengths of different communities, allowing people's skills to shine. Uh, I love it. Um, I will say that one of the reasons why Trump has fueled, I mean, Jeremy talked about uh, the Aristotle thought that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, so does politics. One of the reasons why Trump has adopted this protectionism is because there's hardly a leader in the free world who's actually an articulate advocate for free trade, including Malcolm Turnbull, uh, including, uh, you know, say now, Angela Merkel, you know, the greatest disaster in Europe since the Second World War, um, has finally decided, oh, she's finally got a cause to argue for uh, free trade. Okay, well, I will say Angela Merkel is the dumbest leader in Europe, okay? And she uh, is responsible for permanently weakening because she's a part of this intelligentsia, this sort of class of elites who knows better than everybody else. Um, but, uh, yeah, what was your question? <laughs> uh, what do I worry about, Donald? What do I worry? Okay. Um, can I tell you, one of my original concerns, one of my secret original concerns, no was that he had decided that uh, it, might, it was good for Trump, Inc., whether he won or lost. Uh, Ross, I might start with you and ask you, you talked about the elites that took Trump literally, but not seriously, and ordinary Americans who took him seriously, but not literally. Now that we've seen President Trump in office, mm. do you think perhaps we should take him both literally and seriously? Um, look, I am, <clears throat> I watched the inauguration uh, up live late and everybody was kind of thinking, well, is he now just going to tone it down uh, and turn back in a more conciliatory way towards the establishment and say, OK, well, that's what we had to do to close the deal. Uh, now we're going to behave like a normal politician. Uh, yet what we found uh, was that not only did he not turn, he basically <laughs> ramped it up a notch. <laughs> He basically said, OK, now you're used to it. Now we're going to really start playing this game. Um, I am loving it. <laughs> I think it's just getting better and better. You know, I was on Sky last night and some bloke said, oh, we're watching something. This is this. Now we see it's probably going to be a train wreck. OK, Donald Trump has easily carried the argument with the American people, both in relation to the refugee ban and the halt on the seven countries. The American people are overwhelmingly with him. Uh, according to Andrew Bolt, the numbers are two to one. Uh, I think if you could get an accurate reading from people talking to pollsters, uh, it would be probably two to one. And so, so long as he's operating from within the uh, consent of the American people, I think he's safe as houses. And I think the more the establishment, you know, crawls into the fetal position <laughs> and groans and cries and screams out, uh, the stronger his position becomes. Uh, Tom, could I ask you then, if we are to take him seriously and literally, is Trump a protectionist? And will, if he is, will that be bad for Australia? Well, I think uh, da Daniel Baltz from the Washington Post put it best when he said that the last two weeks show that uh, Trump and his record so far means that uh, he's satisfied all his Trump supporters, but he's struck fear into the hearts of all his critics. I mean, he's a very polarizing character. Uh, but one thing that's clear in the course of the last two weeks is that he has put into practice a lot of what he said he'd do including the executive order on immigration, including uh, winding back or setting the scene for winding back 
uh, the Obama health care provisions known as Obamacare, uh, the climate regulations, uh, among other things. And what the one of the first things he did, of course, was withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the 12-nation free trade agreement uh, that it covers 12 nations, including Australia. Um, I don't think that's in Australia's interests. And I think that if indeed Donald Trump imposes a 45% tariff on Chinese goods and services, as he said he would do during the course of the campaign, uh, if he imposes a 35% tariff on Mexican goods, I think that will, among other things, increase the prices of goods and services for the very battlers he's ostensibly trying to help. I mean, obviously, textiles, clothing, footwear, for example, at Walmart, uh, the prices will go up because of a tariff increase. Um, so I don't think that's good for his own constituency, but I don't think it's good uh, for economic prosperity for the region and the globe generally. We went down this track in the late 1920s and throughout the 1930s when another Republican pre protectionist president, Herbert Hoover, in the aftermath of the uh, Wall Street collapse, uh, imposed tariffs on foreign imports. And many economists to this day believe that d that deepened the Great Recession. So again, another problem is that if you indulge in tariffs and, and protectionist policies, you're more than likely going to get a response from trade competitors. Uh, the economic history shows that uh, trade wars don't lead to prosperity. Um. I'd ask you then, uh, you talked about the party of Reagan. Mm. Reagan, uh, I think uh, Trump's advisor or Trump's, Trump's appointment rather as um, trade representative was in off, acting in that office in the Reagan era, Lighthizer, Robert yes. Lighthizer. And uh, he, of course, was instrumental, and they were instrumental in pushing forward voluntary restraints. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Reagan also used tariffs uh, on, uh, on electronic goods coming from Japan. Yeah. Do you think we're seeing uh, there, there are more similarities there than, than yeah. perhaps those who wrap themselves and say we're the party of Reagan might care to remember? Well, that's a very good point. I think there is a degree of inconsistency here among conservatives. Reagan on semiconductors with Japan on certain other industries wasn't a classic free trader. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the broad cross-section of conservatives and especially Reaganites do believe in the principles of free trade. But look, one of the lessons we have learned from this election campaign, and this is a point that Francis Fukuyama, who's been a guest here at the Centre for Independent Studies on several occasions, he wrote this in Foreign Affairs magazine about a year ago. He said that what the rise of Trump and S Bernie Sanders, the, the old 75-year-old socialist who, who, among other things, uh, honeymooned in the Soviet Union, but uh, <laughs> tr Trump, and, <laughs> Trump and Sanders, their, their rise shows that uh, this is American democracy catching up uh, with uh, two generations of wage stagnation and rising income inequality for the losers of globalization. And they're precisely the folks that Donald Trump has won over. Um, Louise, if I could turn to you then and ask you, uh, looking in Australia and at populism, we've heard Tom mention Bernie Sanders. Do you think uh, if there's going to be a populist wave in Australia that it might actually be on the Labor side? Are we already seeing Labor adopting more populist positions and how might that play out? Um, <clears throat> I think the problem with Labor's populist positions is that they're totally incoherent with their other positions. So they can take some of the Donald's bits on jobs and pretend they're into protectionism. Um, but when they're ignoring the other cultural things, such as free speech, and when they're going for the victim and the outrage, I mean, it's utterly incoherent. Um, which is why, I mean, there are a lot of people um, who are saying you know, there's only one seat difference between the parties, so Labor are going to win the next election. I don't, I don't think that's obvious at all, actually, because Labor's position is so incoherent. Um, so, look, I, I, the only way I see Labor running a populist position is if they reinstalled someone like Mark Latham. Uh, <laughs> truly. I mean, I, I think Mark Latham, um, reinstalled in the Labor Party, could revolutionise it overnight. 
but I can't see Bill Shorten and Tanya Plibersek and um, Chris Bowen parting the waters for Mark to come and save them. That's not going to happen. So that's why I, I just don't think it's going to happen in a mainstream party. The, the, the vested interests, the, 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 the way they are just factionalised, plugged in with people lined up and, and, and waiting, there is just, I mean, the career, I think one of the big problems we have, and I didn't go into this in the speech, is, is the professionalisation of politics. Uh, the careerists, uh, none of them, or not many, not many at all, but most of them cannot afford to lose their jobs or lose their seats. So you will find that in all the safe seats across all the, all the major parties, in nearly all case, cases, my husband's an exception, but in nearly all cases, they will have been pretty plugged into the political process prior to getting pre-selection. Usually they will have been a staffer, on the Labor side, a, a union member, uh, but on both sides. Liberals like to think that they're not like this, but in fact, in the safe seats, and certainly across New South Wales, um, it, it, in the safe seats, they are all career politicians. Now, there's nothing wrong with career politicians, but um, there are some wonderful people who are career politicians with great values and who do the right thing and behave properly, of course. But the overall system um, works to uh, eject non-career politicians. They don't like newbies, I can tell you. Um, and that is the problem. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think a mainstream party um, is looking for a Donald Trump. Ross, can I ask you, you're such a fan mm. uh, um, of Donald Trump. Yep. What's the one <coughs> bad thing that, that you could see that mm. could happen? You've paid a lot of attention. Mm. Well, what would be his, either his Achilles heel or what's the one thing you fear that he might do? Well, look, I agree with Tom in relation to trade policy, okay, I'm a Trump critic, all right, um, in that I am uh, an Adam Smith guy. I am a Margaret Thatcher uh, person. I am a believer like Paul Johnson who said, if you look back through the sweep of human history, what have been the most positive influences for good on the whole of the human race, uh, he would say that trade is at number one, bringing voluntarily, bringing strangers together in trust-based relationships that create value for both sides, maximising the natural strengths of different communities, allowing people's skills to shine. Uh, I love it. Um, I will say that one of the reasons why Trump has fueled, I mean, Jeremy talked about uh, the Aristotle thought that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, so does politics. One of the reasons why Trump has adopted this protectionism is because there's hardly a leader in the free world who's actually an articulate advocate for free trade, including Malcolm Turnbull, uh, including, uh, you know, say now, Angela Merkel, you know, the greatest disaster in Europe since the Second World War, um, has finally decided, oh, she's finally got a cause to argue for uh, free trade. Okay, well, I will say Angela Merkel is the dumbest leader in Europe. Okay? And she uh, is responsible for permanently weakening because she's a part of this intelligentsia, this sort of class of elites who knows better than everybody else. Um, but, uh, yeah, what was your question? <laughs> what do I worry about, Donald? What do I worry? Okay. Um, can I tell you, one of my original concerns, one of my secret original concerns, no was that he had decided that uh, it, might, it was good for Trump, Inc., whether he won or lost, to run for the presidency. That was one of my original concerns. Uh, and one of the one of the you know eleven points in the art of the deal is manage the downside, and the upside will take care of itself. Um, Trump ran the lowest cost campaign, uh, but had the highest impact. You know, which again was another distinctively Donald thing. On one weekend in which I was in the United States, Donald Trump was on the front cover of 22 national magazines in the United States, and he did not pay one cent for the advertising. But right now, Donald Trump, okay, has just sat down with his generals 
And he said, okay, lads, you've got 30 days to come up with a plan to wipe Islamic State from the face of the earth. <laughs> okay, now, do I feel nervous about that? Yes. Okay. Uh, Donald Flynn, you know, Killer Flynn, we're going to have killer, we're going to have these US generals who have been commanding men, tanks, battalions, weapons all over the world sitting down with Maurice Payne. Okay? Uh, negotiating uh, Australia's participation. They've just put Iran formally on notice. Okay? Iran went ahead. The first test, they've launched a test on an intercontinental ballistic missile. Okay? After the Obama-Iran deal. Okay? So Iran has tested Donald. Okay, so Donald has walked back into the room. He's got his, he's got his Minister for Defence back in the room and says, Iran, you're on notice formally. I'm telling you right now. After he's just sacked his stupid uh, acting Attorney General, you know, who gormlessly walks into the room. I'm not going to do it, you say, Donald Trump. Okay, you're fired. <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull has not fired anyone since he got in the job. Donald Trump has done it in the first sort of six days. Bang, you're gone, sister. See you later. Pack up. <laughs> well, now that we're all suitably edgy, I'm going to throw it open to you, our wonderful audience. Um, so if we have any questions, uh, and I think we have people who will race over. Uh, the gentleman there with the blue tie. Yeah, so that's you. Thank you very much, uh, all three of you. Paul Nettlebeck is my name. Many of you here would have heard John Howard just before Christmas. And one of his uh, observations was that he hopes that Trump can deliver to the voters who voted for him. But I think the consensus is that, particularly on the trade issue, he's not going to be able to deliver that. Um, could I have your uh, opinions whether he is going to be able to deliver or not? Well, bear in mind, cutting the company tax rate from 35 to 15% <clears throat> at first glance doesn't <coughs> seem like it's going to help a lot of those battlers in those Rust Belt states, but it will stimulate the economy. And taken together with his plans to uh, in increase infrastructure spending, which will presumably get democratic support on Capitol Hill, uh, and if he targets that infrastructure spending in a lot of those Rust Belt areas that are deindustrialized, that may well create enough stimulus to bring back a lot of jobs to that area. But I don't think trade in itself will do that. I think the reality is a lot of those low-wage jobs in China uh, that, 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 have been, that, that have left America over the last 15 to 20 years since China's inclusion in the WTO, they're now leaving China and they're going to countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and Myanmar. So they're not going to come back to the United States. That's just the reality. Uh, but nevertheless, he can stimulate the economy and, and target infrastructure spending in a way that does boost jobs and employment and uh, growth in those electorates. Look, I'm going to tell you, um, <laughs> you know, you, some will say uh, Ross Cameron was always mad. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, uh, again, go back to the art of the deal. It's the Bible, you know. Uh, he says, uh, first of all, he says, if I have to think, I might as well think big. Number two, he says, uh, manage the downside, the upside will look after itself. Number three, he says, once you've decided on your plan, get the word out. But then number four, he says, deliver on the promise. Deliver. He says, you can't keep, he says, the reason his father made a fortune, or made the small fortune, which Donald turned into a big fortune, was because he figured out at the time <clears throat> The middle class was growing. The first thing, Donald Trump's father built his first commercial structure at the age of 16, which was a carport. At the time, cars were just becoming a feature of middle class America in Queens and the Bronx and outside. And, but then he learned how to deliver high quality housing cheaply. And he, he could sell it as fast as he could make it because it was a good product. And according to Trump, it's still a good product today. Trump is focused on delivering the result. Trump, I believe, is going, when Trump starts rebuilding these dilapidated uh, inner urban cities that have fallen into uh, graffiti and uh, you know, uh, all over the United States, Trump is a builder. Trump is going to clip together a wall across the southern border of the United States like an Ikea bookcase. <laughs> it's going to make people's heads spin. They're going to go, how the hell did that happen? 
And, uh, you know, I believe the thing that is going to make the difference, while I'm not with him on trade, the next point in the art of the deal, which you have to understand, is use your leverage. And this was, I believe, uh, part of the, this is part of the Trump mindset that must be understood. Use your leverage. And I believe he's looked at the Trans-Pacific Partnership and he said, well, this has been uh, negotiated by bonehead Obama's cronies who did the same deal uh, to take a couple of thousand Australian refugees for no reason at all except he felt like it. Uh, and Trump is saying, no, 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 no. Use your leverage. Yeah. So he's saying, Let's, we're going to tear up the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, I believe that Donald Trump believes in free trade probably more than I do. He's certainly done more of it than I have done. And I think you're going to see him then come back to the negotiating table and he's going to do better deals. And this was the stupidity of the Turnbull Coalition government, uh, which was when we learnt Trump was going to walk away from the TPP, instead of saying, OK, uh, what is the deal we can do with this guy? What are the, what are the opportunities this opens up? And, and Trump's senior guys were saying, his transition team was saying, look, we expect to enhance deals we've already done on a bilateral basis. And the truth is bilateralism has always been more productive than multilateralism. Multilateralism is part of the elite insider consensus, what I call the lanyard-wearing <laughs> you know, business class brigade who cannot resist a conference in Rio, no matter what the subject, you know. Uh, the, the ones who were sort of trampling over the bodies in Bactalan in Paris before where they'd just been interred from, from one of the worst acts of Islamic terrorism, trampling over the bodies to get to a conference to try and lower the temperature of the earth. Uh, these cowards, um, Donald Trump is saying, no, 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 let's do a deal. Yeah. Donald Trump's brain is evolved. He's like the most highly evolved organism in doing a deal. That's basically all he knows how to do yeah. is a deal. And so if Australia is smart, the first question you know, Malcolm Turnbull should have said to Donald Trump is, what deal can we do? Yeah. Donald would be saying, you're talking my language. You know, if he should have said, what can we do? Look, we want to do something for Australian beef producers. If we was going to say, oh, look, I was really disappointed that Australian sugar farmers got left out of the TPP, I'm trying to figure out, is there something we can do for you that will allow our sugar farmers into your market? That would have been an intelligent conversation. The fact that the first conversation we have to have is over 1,200 refugees, you know, which, which you know, Rudd Gillard, Rudd uh, Abbott Turnbull, now presumably, who knows next, have been unable to solve which has absolutely no logic to it whatsoever. <laughs> when Donald Trump turns to Malcolm and says, well, I look at this deal, I don't see how it's in the interest of the American people. You know, what's the answer to that, Malcolm? Well, obviously it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say, Louise, did you want to uh, say something? I don't know what he's going to deliver, so I won't speculate. But what I am worried about is our ability to respond to it because of the structural impediments we have. So where we need legislation to pass to respond, such as the reduction in cap company tax, we are, we, are heading, we are going to be here stagnant, as Ross said, and that's what I'm worried about, is our ability to, to deal with it. Can I just make the point, too, that bear in mind, Trump has very deep disagreements, not just with uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats, but with many members of his own party. And nothing better demonstrates that than the cause of free markets. I mean, on the TPP, the reality is the broad cross-section of the <coughs> Republican Party in both the House and the Senate supported the TPP, uh, not just because it meant lower tariffs, but because it meant that the United States would be the principal rule setter in the Asia-Pacific in the 21st century, not China fill the void. And that is, frankly, in our national interest, I think. The other point I'd say is that when you go back to those presidential primaries last year, Donald Trump was the least conservative candidate or the least free market-oriented candidate out of the 17 presidential candidates. Mm. And again, nothing demonstrates that more than not just trade, but his position towards welfare entitlement reform. 
I mean, one of the big pressing issues on Capitol Hill over the last five years has been the Tea Party free market wing of the Republican Party wanting to reduce the size and the scope of the federal government, which means reforming entitlements to rein in debt. Trump opposes all those welfare entitlement reforms. Mm. So bear that in mind, Ross, before you put him on a pedestal, mm. because he is not a free marketeer and he's not a supporter of small government. Uh, we're almost <coughs> running out of time. I'll ask uh, right there at the back, gentlemen there. Thank you, James Phillips. Um, I'm very interested in the reaction of the cultural elite to, um, to Brexit and to the election of Trump. And from what I've read so far, the two predominant um, reactions are to demonise the sort of people who would vote for such things um, and to treat it purely as an economic in, uh, issue rather than um, uh, uh, an issue which has substa substantial cultural component uh, to it. Are there any um, views of the panel as to the ability of um, uh, our academies and state-owned media and other parts of the cultural elite to engage in some self-criticism around these issues? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a good question. Uh, look, well, I, I truly have spent all of my life traipsing between these two worlds. I grew up in far western New South Wales where everyone's a National Party voter. It's really, it's really quite working class, but everyone is conservative socially. Um, my parents are absolutely that. My extended family are there. Um, I went to high school in southwestern Sydney, and then I went to City University, did law, and ended up here. Now I live back in Goulburn. So I have spent my whole life going between those two worlds. Um, and I've always been conscious of the difference. But I've been conscious much more in the last 10 years, pre-Brexit and pre-Trump, I have to say. Um, and the reaction of my friends, my good friends um, and colleagues here in Sydney who work in the CBD, um, to even to people living in Goulburn, they, they, mm. they, they laugh. They say, how could you go there? I mean, it is, mm. it, they are genuinely snobby about it. Mm. Uh, I have wonderful colleagues in universities where I've taught here in Sydney and um, um, in Canberra. No, they don't get it. And I don't see any evidence of them trying to get it. So I don't want to take up much more time, but a classic example um, yesterday on Facebook, one of my very dear friends who lives in Sydney, who's a left-wing barrister, shared one of Christina Keneally's articles, um, which was Malcolm, you know, support our values, which of course was her values. Um, and I love Christina, I think she's wonderful, I think she's a gem and I think she's clever and smart and articulate, but her piece in The Guardian was saying, you've got to stand up for our values. And then she said, oh, when I go to the supermarket and the gym and the school, People are coming up to me and they're scared. And I've got to say, I laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I go to Pilates, yes, we have Pilates in Goulburn, <laughs> and when I go to the supermarket and to tuck shop or wherever I go, um, no one's scared. <laughs> and my, our, our fellow who helps us on the farm um, said to me a couple of days ago, I hadn't seen him for a while, he said, and I said, what do you think? And he's the guy who sits on the, the, the sort of top rail of the stockyards and he's pl he talks to everyone in Goulburn. So I say, what's happening on the top rail of the stockyards, Jim? And he said, geez, that Trump, he's a scary dude, but geez, I love the way he's giving it to them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Louise, he, he, just uh, one final question. <laughs> uh, you, you, your husband, Angus Taylor, he's a brilliant mind. Oh. <laughs> Well, why isn't he the knight in shining armour that's uh, <laughs> come to save the party? Oh, Michael. <laughs> uh, look. Why don't you let me answer that question? <laughs> can I... I'm childhood when I, I wind it up. You let let me say one thing. I will say one thing. I reflected. I thought that some cheeky person like you might ask something about that. But um, the one thing that Angus... Angus doesn't have much in common with Donald Trump, I don't think, but he does have something in common, and that is that he is a transplant. Um, he is a foreign body in the Liberal Party, and they have tried to eject him once, and uh, 
you know, they might try again. No. So that is the truth of it. Uh, but we're in Westminster, as I said. It's very tricky, you know. Everyone, that, that's the strength of the system, but it's its weakness. So Can I just quickly make the point, though, following on from the first question, I'll be quick, Rebecca. I think in many respects Australia had a Trump moment in 99 over the Republican referendum. Yeah. And I make this point because there was a huge... A divergence of um, uh, big divergence between the elite opinion and ordinary people on the question of whether we should become a republic or whether we should embrace the politicians' republic. Mm. And I was struck, having worked at Fairfax at the time, the overwhelming consensus among all the newspapers and the television stations and all the journalists and intellectuals was that a republic was not only a good thing but an, an inevitable thing. And the people disagreed. And that was a Trump moment. The, the cultural things have have got worse though since then. Since yeah. 1999, I mean, I was a lawyer in Sydney and going out west to parents. I, I, the cultural superiority, the, the sense of superiority amongst the, you know, the cultural elite is And is has social very, media exacerbated that? I mean, the, the yeah. total intolerance yeah. for views of ordinary people. Yeah. Um, it just strikes me again and again. I see it every day in my interactions in the both worlds. But the Liberal Party has been absolutely useless uh, at addressing any of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you vote Liberal, Labor or Green, mm -hmm. you are still going to have a Sydney University Faculty of Arts. I mean, Sydney University Faculty of Arts went out and recruited the world's leading feminist authority on the orgasm, okay? She was, she's the leader of the operation, right? She's widely published on, on, on masturbation, okay? And I thought, very, very appropriate for Sydney University Faculty of the Arts, you know? That's basically what they're all good at. Uh, you know, uh, meanwhile, the Chinese are building 20,000 kilometres of high-speed rail, you know, because their people actually learn some skills. They learn how to think critically. Well, I think uh, that's a wonderful... <laughs> What's been an extraordinary, I could even say a Trumpian tonight, you've trumped all of my expectations anyway. I think it's been wonderful. I, I will just say in wrapping up that uh, we were so surprised and de but delighted by the strength of the response. We had to turn a lot of people away tonight, mm -hmm. that we're planning to do this again in a couple of months. So watch the CIS website for further details. Trump will be the topic and uh, there will be more uh, wonderful <laughs> insights coming from here. So thank you all to all our wonderful panel. To run for the presidency. That was one of my original concerns. Uh, and one of the, one of the you know, 11 points in The Art of the Deal is manage the downside and the upside will take care of itself. Um, Trump ran the lowest cost campaign, uh, but had the highest impact, you know, which again was another distinctively Donald thing. On one weekend in which I was in the United States, Donald Trump was on the front cover of 22 national magazines in the United States, and he did not pay one cent <laughs> for the advertising. But right now, Donald Trump, okay, has just sat down with his generals and he said, OK, lads, you've got 30 days to come up with a plan to wipe Islamic State from the face of the earth. <laughs> OK, now, do I feel nervous about that? Yes. Okay. Uh, Donald Flynn, you know, Killer Flynn, we're going to have killer, we're going to have these US generals who have been commanding men, tanks, battalions, weapons all over the world sitting down with Maurice Payne. OK? Uh, negotiating uh, Australia's participation. They've just put Iran formally on notice, okay? Iran went ahead. The first test, they've launched a test on an intercontinental ballistic missile, okay, after the Obama-Iran deal, okay? So Iran has tested Donald, okay? So Donald has walked back into the room. He's got his, he's got his Minister for Defence back in the room and says, Iran, you're on notice formally. I'm telling you right now. After he's just sacked his stupid uh, acting attorney general, you know, who gormlessly walks into the room. And, I'm not going to do it, you say, Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, you're fine. 
<laughs> Malcolm Turnbull has not fired anyone since he got in the job. Donald Trump has done it in the first sort of six days. Bang, you're gone, sister. See you later. Pack up. Well, now that we're all suitably edgy, I'm going to throw it over to you, our wonderful audience. Um, so if we have any questions, uh, and I think we have people who will race over. Uh, the gentleman there with the blue tie. Yeah, so that's you. Thank you very much, uh, all three of you. Paul Nettlebeck is my name. Many of you here would have heard John Howard just before Christmas, and one of his uh, observations was that he hopes that Trump can deliver to the voters who voted for him. But I think the consensus is that, particularly on the trade issue, he's not going to be able to deliver that. Um, could I have your uh, opinions whether he is going to be able to deliver or not? Well, bear in mind, cutting the company tax rate from 35 to 15% <clears throat> at first glance doesn't <coughs> seem like it's going to help a lot of those battlers in those Rust Belt states, but it will stimulate the economy. And taken together with his plans to uh, in increase infrastructure spending, which will presumably get Democratic support on Capitol Hill, uh, and if he targets that infrastructure spending in a lot of those Rust Belt areas that are deindustrialized, that may well create enough stimulus to bring back a lot of jobs to that area. But I don't think trade in itself will do that. I think the reality is a lot of those low-wage jobs in China uh, that, 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 have been, that, that have left America over the last 15 to 20 years since China's inclusion in the WTO, they're now leaving China. And they're going to countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and Myanmar. So they're not going to come back to the United States. That's just the reality. Uh, but nevertheless, he can stimulate the economy and, and target infrastructure spending in a way that does boost jobs and employment and uh, growth in those electorates. Look, I'm going to tell you, um, <laughs> you know, you, some will say uh, Ross Cameron was always mad. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, uh, again, go back to the art of the deal. It's the Bible. You know, uh, he says, uh, first of all, he says, if I have to think, I might as well think big. Number two, he says, uh, manage the downside, the upside will look after itself. Number three, he says, once you've decided on your plan, get the word out. But then number four, he says, deliver on the promise. Deliver. He says, you can't keep, he says, the reason his father made a fortune, or made the small fortune, which Donald turned into a big fortune, was because he figured out at the time <clears throat> The middle class was growing. The first thing, Donald Trump's father built his first commercial structure at the age of 16, which was a carport. At the time, cars were just becoming a feature of middle class America in Queens and the Bronx and outside. And, but then he learned how to deliver high quality housing cheaply. And he, he could sell it as fast as he could make it because it was a good product. And according to Trump, it's still a good product today. Trump is focused on delivering the result. Trump, I believe, is going, when Trump starts rebuilding these dilapidated uh, inner urban cities that have fallen into uh, graffiti and uh, you know, uh, all over the United States, Trump is a builder. Trump is going to clip together a wall across the southern border of the United States like an Ikea bookcase. <laughs> it's going to make people's head spin. They're going to go, how the hell did that happen? And, uh, you know, I believe the thing that is going to make the difference, while I'm not with him on trade, the next point in the art of the deal, which you have to understand, is use your leverage. And this was, I believe, uh, part of the, this is part of the Trump mindset that must be understood. Use your leverage. And I believe he's looked at the Trans-Pacific Partnership and he said, well, this has been uh, negotiated by bonehead Obama's cronies who did the same deal uh, to take a couple of thousand Australian refugees for no reason at all, except he felt like it. <laughs> Uh, and Trump is saying, no, 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 no. Use your leverage. Yeah. So he's saying, Let's, we're going to tear up the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. I believe that Donald Trump believes in free trade probably more than I do. He's certainly done more of it than I have done. 
And I think you're going to see him then come back to the negotiating table and he's going to do better deals. And this was the stupidity of the Turnbull coalition government, uh, which was when we learnt Trump was going to walk away from the TPP, instead of saying, OK, uh, what is the deal we can do with this guy? What are, the, what are the opportunities this opens up? And, and Trump's senior guys were saying, his transition team was saying, look, we expect to enhance deals we've already done on a bilateral basis. And the truth is bilateralism has always been more productive than multilateralism. Multilateralism is part of the elite insider consensus, what I call the lanyard-wearing <laughs> you know, business class brigade who cannot resist a conference in Rio, no matter what the subject, you know. Uh, the, the ones who were sort of trampling over the bodies in Bactalan in Paris before well, they'd just been interred from, from one of the worst acts of Islamic terrorism, trampling over the bodies to get to a conference to try and lower the temperature of the earth. Uh, these cowards. Um, Donald Trump is saying, no, 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 let's do a deal. Yeah. Donald but Trump's brain is evolved. He's like the most highly evolved organism in doing a deal. That's basically all he knows how to do yeah. is a deal. And so if Australia is smart, the first question you know, Malcolm Turnbull should have said to Donald Trump is, what deal can we do? Yeah. Donald would be saying, you're talking my language. <laughs> you know, if he should have said, what can we do? Look, we want to do something for Australian beef producers. If we was going to say, oh, look, I was really disappointed that Australian sugar farmers got left out of the TPP, I'm trying to figure out, is there something we can do for you that will allow our sugar farmers into your market? That would have been an intelligent conversation. The fact that the first conversation we have to have is over 1,200 <coughs> refugees, you know, which, which, you know, Rudd Gillard, Rudd uh, Abbott Turnbull, now presumably, who knows next, have been unable to solve which has absolutely no logic to it whatsoever. <laughs> when Donald Trump turns to Malcolm and says, well, I look at this deal, I don't see how it's in the interest of the American people. You know, what's the answer to that, Malcolm? Well, obviously it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say, Louise, did you want to uh, say something? I, I don't know what he's going to deliver, so I won't speculate. But what I am worried about is our ability to respond to it because of the structural impediments we have. So where we need legislation to pass to respond, such as the reduction in cap company tax, we are, we are heading, we are going to be here stagnant, as Ross said, and that's what I'm worried about, is our ability to, to deal with it. Can I just make the point too that bear in mind Trump has very deep disagreements not just with uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats but with many members of his own party and nothing better demonstrates that than the cause of free markets. I mean on the TPP the reality is the broad cross-section of the <coughs> Republican Party in both the House and the Senate supported the TPP. Uh, not just because it meant lower tariffs, but because it meant that the United States would be the principal rule setter in the Asia Pacific in the 21st century, and not China fill the void. And that is frankly in our national interest, I think. The other point I'd say is that when you go back to those presidential primaries last year, Donald Trump was the least conservative candidate or the least free market oriented candidate out of the 17 presidential candidates. Mm. And again, nothing demonstrates that more than not just trade, but his position towards welfare entitlement reform. I mean, one of the big pressing issues on Capitol Hill over the last five years has been the Tea Party free market wing of the Republican Party wanting to reduce the size and the scope of the federal government, which means reforming entitlements to rein in debt. Trump opposes all those welfare entitlement reforms. Mm. So bear that in mind, Ross, before you put him on a pedestal, mm. because he is not a free marketeer and he's not a supporter of small government. Uh, we're almost <coughs> running out of time. I'll ask uh, right there at the back, gentlemen there at the back. Thank you, James Phillips. Um, I'm very interested in the reaction of the cultural elite to, um, to Brexit and to the election of Trump. And from what I've read so far, the two predominant um, reactions are to demonise the sort of people who would vote for such things um, and to treat it purely as an economic in, uh, issue rather than um, uh, an issue which has substa substantial cultural component uh, to it. Are there any um, views of the panel as to the ability of um, uh, our academies and state-owned media and 
other parts of the cultural elite to engage in some self-criticism around these issues? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, look, well, I, I truly have spent all of my life traipsing between these two worlds. I grew up in far western New South Wales, where everyone's a National Party voter. It's really, it's really quite working class, but everyone is conservative socially. Um, my parents are absolutely that. My extended family are there. Um, I went to high school in southwestern Sydney, and then I went to City University, did law, and ended up here. Now I live back in Goulburn. So I have spent my whole life going between those two worlds. Um, and I've always been conscious of the difference. But I've been conscious much more in the last 10 years, pre-Brexit and pre-Trump, I have to say. Um, and the reaction of my friends, my good friends um, and colleagues here in Sydney who work in the CBD, um, to even to people living in Goulburn, they, mm. they, they laugh. They say, how could you go there? I mean, it is. It, mm. They are genuinely snobby about it. Mm. Uh, I have wonderful colleagues in universities where I've taught here in Sydney and um, um, in Canberra. No, they don't get it. And I don't see any evidence of them trying to get it. Mm. So I don't want to take up much more time, but a classic example. Um, yesterday on Facebook, one of my very dear friends who lives in Sydney, who's a left-wing barrister, shared one of Christina Keneally's articles, um, which was Malcolm, you know, support our values, which of course was her values. Um, and I love Christina, I think she's wonderful, I think she's a gem and I think she's clever and smart and articulate. But her piece in The Guardian was saying, you've got to stand up for our values. And then she said, oh, when I go to the supermarket and the gym and the school, people are coming up to me and they're scared. And I've got to say, I laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I go to Pilates, yes, we have Pilates in Goulburn, <laughs> and when I go to the supermarket and to tuck shop or wherever I go, um, no one's scared. <laughs> and my, our, our fellow who helps us on the farm um, said to me a couple of days ago, I hadn't seen him for a while, he said, I said, what do you think? And he's the guy who sits on the, the, the sort of top rail of the stockyards and he's he talks to everyone in Goulburn. So I say, what's happening on the top rail of the stockyards, And he said, geez, that Trump, he's a scary dude, but geez, I love the way he's giving it to them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Louise, he, he, just uh, one final question. <laughs> uh, you, you, your husband, Angus Taylor, he's a brilliant mind. Oh, <laughs> Well, why isn't he the knight in shining armour that's come to save the party? Oh, Michael. <laughs> uh, look. Why don't you let me answer that question? <laughs> can I... I'm trying we've got to wind it up. You let go, let me on. say one thing. I will say one thing. I reflected. I thought that some cheeky person like you might ask something about that. But um, the one thing that Angus... Angus doesn't have much in common with Donald Trump, I don't think, but he does have something in common, and that is that he is a transplant. Um, he is a foreign body in the Liberal Party, and they have tried to eject him once, and, uh, uh, you know, they might try again. No. So that is the truth of it. Uh, but we're in Westminster, as I said. It's very tricky, you know. Everyone, that, that's the strength of the system, but it's its weakness. So Can I just quickly make the point, though, following on from the first question, I'll be quick, Rebecca. I think in many respects Australia had a Trump moment in 99 over the Republican referendum. Yeah. And I make this point because there was a huge uh, divergence of, um, uh, big divergence between the elite opinion and ordinary people on the question of whether we should become a republic or whether we should embrace the politicians' republic. Mm. And I was struck, having worked at Fairfax at the time, the overwhelming consensus among all the newspapers and the television stations and all the journalists and intellectuals was that a republic was not only a good thing but an, an inevitable thing. And the people disagreed. And that was a Trump moment. The, the cultural things have, have got worse, though, since then. Since yeah. 1999, I mean, I was a lawyer in Sydney and going out west to parents. I, I, the cultural superiority, the, the sense of superiority amongst the, you know, the cultural elite is, is And has social very, media exacerbated that? I mean, the, the yeah. total intolerance yeah. for views of ordinary people yeah. um, 
it just strikes me again and again. I see it every day in my interactions in the both worlds. But the Liberal Party has been absolutely useless uh, at addressing any of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you vote Liberal, Labor or Green, mm -hmm. you are still going to have a Sydney University Faculty of Arts. I mean, Sydney University Faculty of Arts went out and recruited the world's leading feminist authority on the orgasm, okay? She was, she's the leader of the operation, right? She's widely published on, on, on masturbation, okay? And I thought, very, very appropriate for Sydney University Faculty of the Arts, you know? That's basically what they're all good at, uh, you know? Uh, meanwhile, the Chinese are building 20,000 kilometres of high-speed rail, you know, because their people actually learn some skills. They learn how to think critically. Well, I think uh, that's a wonderful... <laughs> Because what's been an extraordinary, I could even say a Trumpian tonight, you've trumped all of my expectations anyway. I think it's been wonderful. I, I will just say in wrapping up that uh, we were so surprised and de but delighted by the strength of the response. We had to turn a lot of people away tonight mm -hmm. that we're planning to do this again in a couple of months. So watch the CIS website for further details. Trump will be the topic and uh, there will be more panel. Uh, wonderful <laughs> insights coming from here. So thank you all to all our wonderful panelists.